Amen. So this is uh, the first opportunity I've had to preach here at City since before the pandemic. Tonight, we're concluding our fall study of the book of Judges, looking at chapters 19 through 21. So as you see in your worship folder, that's a big chunk of scripture, but there's a good reason to consider it as a unit. I think Pastor Joseph, who laid out the preaching, uh, chose this, and you'll see why. Um, Pastor Nauman, if you were here last week, um, preached on Judges 17 to 18, and he mentioned that the last five chapters of the book of Judges are, they kind of form an appendix, as it were, to the rest of the narrative. Uh, we encountered the last judge, who was Samson, in chapter 16. You won't find any judge in these chapters. But instead, we find four references to the lack of a king and its association with the behavior of the people of God. Last week, that behavior had to do with idolatry. This week, you get immorality, like it or not. If you look at the first and last verses of our text right now, that we'll soon read, you'll see that they function as bookends to the passage. 19.1 says, in those days when there was no king in Israel, etc., and then the well-known verse, the end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What we have in these chapters, friends, is kind of a ground-level, detailed view of life lived without reference to an authority higher than one's own perspective one heavily influenced by a surrounding pagan culture that the people of God had fully assimilated with. And the result is a very bleak and dark picture, one that reminded me of a cynical and perverse song that the college guys in my dorm would sing on a classmate's birthday. I hate to admit that I joined in the joke, but I did. The song went like this. Happy birthday, happy birthday. People dying everywhere, death, destruction, and despair. Happy birthday, happy birthday. That song, friends, depicts life when God's rule and God's law are rejected and when his grace is withdrawn and he does not intervene to rescue his people. I think it actually nails the main point of the difficult narrative that we're going to read in Judges 19 to 21. It's kind of the point of the passage. With no king to rule or to rescue, doing what is right in our own eyes leads to moral chaos. And tonight, I'd like to make this proposition drawn from this portion of the word. Just like our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, we are far more wicked and desperate sinners than we ever imagined. We need the true and the risen King Jesus to rule, rescue, and restore us, which is our ultimate inheritance. 
So I'm going to read the text. Uh, we don't have the whole text. It's 103 verses, and I've chopped it down to 54. We're going to read it in stages. Since it's such a long passage, I'm going to be filling in some of the gaps to have you understand the narrative. This is really almost like a short story from beginning to end. And then we'll talk at the end about how we respond to this word as a whole. I will end each chapter with, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond. We're going to begin with Judges chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband rose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. I'm going to pause uh, before we move on. So what looks like a potentially redemptive and positive start to the passage that could perhaps be used as an illustration for a David Snoke hospitality sermon uh, takes a weird turn. When the concubine's father turns out to be an overbearing host, whining and dining the Levite over four days, perhaps to avoid the disgrace of his daughter's turning from the marriage. The Levite decides enough is enough, and on the fifth day, with his servant and his concubine, they leave the father-in-law's home. The late start in the day means they won't make it home by dark, so they must find lodging in a nearby town. Well, will it be the Canaanite city of Jebus, which actually became Jerusalem, or the Israelite town of Gibeah, which is of Benjamin? The Levite wants to avoid foreigners, so he chooses Gibeah, but as they arrive at dusk, there's no hospitality offered. And so they plan to stay overnight in the open square of the town. That is, until they encounter an old man coming in from the fields, who himself is an out-of-town Ephraimite, who asks about their plans, and he offers them the hospitality of his home, but warns them against staying in the open square of the city. Well, the Levite agrees to the offer and goes with his concubine and male servant to the old man's home for dinner, drinks, and an overnight stay, which is where we pick up the narrative in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. 
violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, that is the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of his house and went to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, just a few things about this chapter. Everything is wrong from the start. The Levite, who was supposed to be ministering in a town assigned to him as an inheritance, is instead a drifter. And he's taken a concubine, which was a second-class wife, meaning that he was likely a polygamist. You will note, if you would, in this text that there's no one named in this chapter. In fact, in all three chapters in the end of Judges, there's only one person that's actually named. The anonymity is likely intentional on the part of the narrator. By doing so, he is telling us that the characters are representative of their times, of all the people at that cultural moment. The spiritual leaders, the Levites, were compromised. Women were treated as objects, as property. Violence and sexual sin were common. And anyone who knows biblical history will see an awful parallel in verses 22 through 25 to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. So the writer is equating what occurred in an ancient pagan town, Sodom, with a city in Israel, which is to say the, the Lord's people in Gibeah were no better than the Sodomites. There's also an ambiguity in the text as to who actually murdered the concubine. Was it the men of Gibeah or was it the Levite? The text doesn't really tell us. It's part of the negative portrayal of sin. My last comment before we must move on is to remind us, friends, this is historical, an historical count from God's word. This actually happened. And we should mourn. We should mourn over the effects of such sin in ourselves and in our culture. 
The very same sins depicted in Judges 19 are happening in places around our world even today. Well, let's move on. Chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, Give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in, in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And we'll pause there so I can fill in a gap here. If those sound like fighting words to you from the Israelites and a negative prideful response from the Benjamites, you're correct. Both groups mobilize their armies. Israel makes a superficial inquiry of the Lord before they begin a civil war by attacking Gibeah. They're soundly defeated despite overwhelming numbers. They again make an appearance before God at Bethel, but they essentially are asking him to rubber stamp their preconceived plan. They're badly defeated again the second day, which leads them before the Lord a third time. And that's where we pick it up at verse 26. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow... I will give them into your hand. 
One more pause here. The Israelites then devise a more strategic plan for battle. They draw the Benjamites out of the town of Gibeah into the open, which allows men that they've set in ambush to take the town and attack the Benjamites from the rear. So they're surrounding them, and that's where we pick it up in verse 43. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gedom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found they set on fire. This is the word of the Lord. So now we see tragic escalation of the effects of sin in a people who historically have been shown much grace, who were delivered from bondage and evil Egypt and given an inheritance in the promised land. Now they're tearing themselves apart as they attempt to bring forth justice in their compromised society. The narrator has included great irony in this in his account in that the greatest unity of purpose and action found in the entire book of Judges happens how in response to the account of a compromised Levite who has edited the truth of his callous sin and treatment of a woman who was his lover. And instead of dealing justly with the Levite and the gang of rapists in Gibeah, the Israelites and Benjamites escalate into civil war and genocide. Now in case you're having trouble identifying with major sins as we're seeing here, friends, may I ask who among us Who among you has not edited the truth like the Levite when we're confronted with our own sin and responsibility? Let's move on. Chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. 
What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. Let me break here. Two rash vows described in the first part of chapter 21 lead to two tragic and sinful human solutions to a problem of their own making in the latter part of the chapter. The first involved the clan of Jebesh Gilead, who apparently did not attend the great assembly at Mizpah, and they were therefore singled out for complete destruction, holy war, as a result of verse 5, the great oath. However, to keep the rash vow of verse 1, a plan was made to identify and spare the virgin daughters of Jebesh Gilead so that they could be given to the remaining 600 male Benjamite water warriors at the Rock of Rimen. 400 women were taken, which if you do the math, isn't enough. That's where we pick up the narrative in verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the Rock of Rimen and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. The last break. Having determined that the tribe of Benjamin should be perpetuated at all costs, the elders of Israel decide to get wives for the 200 remaining unmarried Benjamite warriors. How? Via forced abduction during a religious festival at Shiloh. They instruct these men to wait in ambush in the vineyards for the dancers from the daughters of Shiloh and then forcibly take them back to their homeland as their wives. They're also given a morally dubious rationale for the action to give to the fathers of the abducted women. We now come to the end of our reading in verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there you have it, friends. After awful sexual sin and perversion, murder, lying, and cover-up, civil war and genocide, we can now add the sins of rash oath-taking that lead to manipulative schemes involving more genocide and now kidnapping. 
And the manipulation is being done by who? By the elders of Israel, no less, which makes me tremble as an elder of God's church. Oh, the tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The effects of our sin multiply as ripples from a single stone dropped in the water. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, let me conclude this extended meditation. The end of Judges is one of the hardest reads in the word of God. There are great sins of commission and omission and manipulation. It is damning and uncomfortable. But friends, you and I will never understand and experience the wonder of the gospel of grace until you and I understand and own the depths of our depravity as sinners. To return to my homiletical point, just like our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, we are far more wicked and desperate sinners than we ever imagined. We need the true and risen King Jesus to rule, rescue, and restore us, which is our ultimate inheritance. That last word, inheritance, is perhaps, I think, the only hint of hope in this passage. Would you look at verses 23 and 24? Because the word is twice mentioned there. The God who had promised Israel an inheritance in the land of promise is still present, friends. He is still gracious. He is still their God at the end of the day. The presence of chaos does not mean the absence of God. For the ultimate chaos, the abandonment of the sinless Son of God on a Roman cross by his just and loving Father to secure an inheritance for his chosen people by grace, it's in view even at this lowest point in the history of that people. So inheritance is where I want to land this evening. I'm going to invite Pastor John McCombs to lead us in the celebration of one of the greatest tokens of our inheritance in Christ, the Lord's Supper. I'd like, to, like you to hear from the Apostle Peter in this word as I close and then pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Would you pray with me?